Welcome, everybody, to our inaugural Season 2 podcast of Star Trek Voyager here on Trek No Babble. This is Matthew. This is Kevin. And we have two special guest podcasters today, one being Matthew's wife, Kelly. Hi, Kelly here. And the other being Matthew's sister. I guess that's my sister. Yeah, well, why are we referring to ourselves? Can I do that? Can I call, Can I refer to myself in the third person from here on out? Sure. We can, yeah, this is our podcast. We can... <laughs> Do what we want to. Hi, Elizabeth. Hi, everyone. Hi, everyone. All right. So we're going to do the 37s, which uh, was produced for season one of Voyager, along with a couple other episodes. I believe it was Projections, Elogium, and Twisted. So four episodes from season one got sort of uh, held over to season two. The 37s was supposed to be the season finale of season one and I guess the writing team of Brandon Braga and Jerry Taylor for whom this is their single uh, collaboration um, they felt it was better as a season finale because I guess there's sort of a an emotional coming together of the crew or something um, you know I kind of liked the first season finale the way it was what was it uh, learning curve learning curve I, I gotta say it didn't feel like a finale and we'll, I'll, we'll get to this uh toward the end of the episode i get what they're saying given that the whole narrative like the dramatic hook of the episode is does the crew stay behind or continue home yeah the fact that both the entirety of both crews decide to continue on their way home feels like a, a it's supposed to feel like a turning point for the crew and I, I can see how that would work my problem is they held back the four episodes so upn could start their season four weeks before uh, the other big four networks. Yeah. And uh, I understand, you, you know, money's got to be made. Bills have to be paid. I don't know why I'm rhyming all of a sudden, but like, I understand you have to make decisions to make your network viable, but anytime the hand of the producer is too obviously involved in a narrative decision, it, it, it shows and it it's like, you didn't do this because you thought maybe this would work better as a as a season opener than a season ender it was just done to be done like there was no internal reason to do it this way and that kind of annoys me but it's not well i, mean, I have questions whether that strategy would actually work anyway because you know if four out of five networks if you're going to call it a fifth network if four out of five networks are doing one thing are people really going to tune into the fifth because it's the only game in town i, I don't know i wonder right Okay, well, does anybody else have any prefatory comments? Just as an interesting bit of trivia here, we went to a Star Trek convention, the four of us, a oh, few years God, ago. Yeah. And this episode <laughs> came up in a uh, trivia contest. I think Matthew asked the question of <laughs> people playing trivia. and uh, No, I didn't ask the question. It was someone oh, else who asked the, the question. Oh, you were the person who got it right. Kevin and Elizabeth were up there trying to answer questions. And someone asked the question, uh, what year were the Earth visitors snatched from uh, in the second season premiere of Voyager? Yeah, we and said, did you say 39? Yeah, we no. said 39. Yes, and I said 39, yeah. I was literally jumping <laughs> in the crowd, waving my arms in the air. I might have also been saying, ooh, ooh, ooh. But I was jumping and waving my arms for sure because I knew it was the 37s, and I won several T-shirts. Actually, one of which I'm wearing right now. Yeah, I I, I wore the Star Trek hoodie. I won it that as a result of that trivia contest. I I got the Battlestar Galactica mug, the Star Trek hoodie, 
a BSG shirt and I, I think something else and I forget what. But yeah, I, I've thought that question violated the rules because they explicitly said no number questions at the start. That's a title question. Yeah, blah, blah, blah. But anyway, <laughs> we, 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 we rallied and won plenty of swag. So in the yes. end, everyone was happy. And there was well, a bunch and I got two shirts out of it. Yeah, so. so there you go. You're welcome, Matthew. Oh, yeah, and a, and a transporter mug. Okay, well, that said... Shame on you too, Elizabeth and Kevin. <laughs> and let's just get started. Uh, so, everybody get your discs or streaming media ready. And we will press play all together in three, two, one. Press play. So, I like this intro. It's It's a strange sort of... Uh, I don't know, hook, I guess, you know, it's like there's rust and, you know, they're talking. Now I know Kevin exactly what you're going to say when they start talking about gasoline. Um, you know, it's like that sort of, what did they use in the 20th century? You know, Oh my goodness. See that, that they don't... that's true. I get that. The, uh, but my, my issue is I find it hard to believe that the Voyager sensors sensors are sensitive enough to detect particles of rust in interstellar space i mean that's a tall order i mean well you know it's future technology i mean it doesn't it doesn't pull me out of the episode spectrography spectrography um that's just awful specific i mean there can't be that i mean even if they were just detecting the entire car at once that's not that much matter out there and it's just like that's a that's a pretty it's a very refined sensor is all i'm saying but yeah i'm surprised they knew what rust was yeah. Yeah, they yeah, probably. I suppose just... it's a basic uh, chemical reaction. Don't they make rust-free materials in their <laughs> their time? I, I bet you transparent aluminum doesn't rust. <laughs> no, that's very likely. The uh, truck effect. How do we feel about that? Uh, it was okay. I, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, it wasn't you know. Didn't anything. blow my mind or anything. Right, but it, it was didn't pull me out of the moment or anything. How did that truck get into interstellar space? Right. That always that the. I, I, I haven't watched this episode in about a year. I think I, I think that was my last um, Voyager rewatch. But um, uh, yeah, I'm trying to remember if there's something in the plot that explains how the truck they pulled from Earth to this other planet ended up in deep space. I mean, well, so there's going to be this, uh, you know, alien race, the Briori, I believe. Yeah. And did they just like leave their back door open and the truck fell out or what? Yeah, I don't think they ever provided any sort of explanation as to because if if Amelia Earhart's plane is on, on the, the planet, planet, yeah, then why is this truck in space? <laughs> well, I, mean, I guess they didn't need a truck, but they're farmers. They think they could really use a pickup truck. I mean, on on some level, the whole point of this scene was here's an object of indisputable Earth origin, absolutely where it should not be. Fine. Yeah. Okay. It's supposed to be incongruous, and it is. It's it's a it's it's just shy of a MacGuffin because it's not actually it's not actually driving the entire plot, but it's like, and it, it, it these are the nitpicking complaints that as much as we object, we actually love these because what else would we have been talking about for the last four minutes if we couldn't discuss these tiny details? Um, <laughs> well, I like the truck. I think it's, and I, I love that they have a real period truck on set now. Yeah. Uh, the manure is still there. Is this well, how did the that not... of the? Uh, so I was just gonna ask if this is the beginning of sort of Tom Paris showing his love of 
I believe this is the first century. episode where he's done yeah, that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. It's well, it's an that, awesome. That's a nice piece. note for the character. Yeah, like it's it's a cool prop. I mean, I mean, it that is an actual truck, I assume, right? Because it would have been I probably more money to build a prop that looked like that, right? Probably, yeah. Yeah, it's a real truck. So this is an early hover car. it's a it's i understand you can't know how much like if you showed me a chariot i wouldn't be like this is this is one technological leap above walking like i understand what a chariot (laughs) is in its historical context and i get the general thrust of how they work i mean it's just they never quite balance and and every series does this but from next gen on then they never quite hit the right pitch for just how baffled and quaint we should find these ancient pieces of technology. It just—it's it, always—it's—it yeah, it just doesn't always annoys me slightly. I like this note for Janeway too. Like she's from Indiana, she knows about rural living. Yeah. There's water in the radiator. <laughs> it's not totally frozen. Or evaporated into yeah, space it's or whatever. Yeah, space. All right. So, 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 someone email a physicist. What would happen if you just? Pour, if liquid water were in deep space, would it freeze well, or Could an internal vaporize? combustion engine be uh, ignited after how, how many centuries in deep space? Like at least three centuries, right? Because what's the year? 23-something? So so four centuries. Yeah. Five. No, but, no four. Four? Yeah. <laughs> Has Mythbusters done a Star Trek episode yet? They did the Gorn cannon. Tuvok with the phaser is pretty funny. Well, Mythbusters did the Gorn episode. Yeah, which was awesome, by the way, if only because it was so much fun watching them have so much fun. Grant Imahara, in particular, was clearly having the best day at work ever. Um, Yeah, I find it hard to believe that the gasoline, that, that all... I would buy that the the electric the electric stuff to the extent there was electron um because how would this have even been sparked it would, would have been like a physical spark plug or something wouldn't it? I mean this wasn't like some you know high tech fuel injected thing this was pretty basic stuff anyway I find it hard to believe that the liquid components necessary to run the truck would work. Um, now, I, I had to ask about AM radio signals here. Yeah. How far could an AM radio signal actually be transmitted? I mean... Oh, well, I mean, AM radio is a very sort of long-frequency uh, electromagnetic radiation, and it's good at travel. It can travel all the way around the Earth very easily. Uh, that's what ham radio is based on, is the AM bandwidth. And, you know, so really the question is simply how far are they, and thus how long would it take for the signal to reach them? Well, they're traveling at warp to get Yeah, there. apparently they're going at warp. So, well, okay, I mean, you know, if the... If they're, if they're 300 light years away, I suppose they could be picking up the radio signal. Right, I find but, it hard. Well, the people would have to have sent the signal immediately upon... Uh, landing on the planet though right and then i mean it looks like there's some piece of technology aiding the radio when they find it or is it just a power source it's not augmenting the actual sos i think it's just a i think it's just a power source yeah like just okay. a battery basically. battery or something um as far as picking it up i do question whether they could pick it up on the radio in the truck yeah because although the signal itself could travel that far 
uh, it is the case that electromagnetic radiation, as it travels over great distances, becomes longer and longer in wavelength. So it would shift further and further out of the bandwidth of AM and become something more like, uh, let me think about the spectrum. I yeah, what's, what's be, to the left of AM? Oh. Well, it should be red-shifted, so it would be um, not ultraviolet, but uh, infrared. It should be shifting into infrared radiation, which the, the radio of the truck shouldn't be able to pick up. But well, isn't I think AM it's, already... a, it's a fun plot device to get them from point A to point B. Yeah, we're, we're probably overanalyzing. And I think AM, isn't AM already, it's below infrared anyway, like visible light? No, is that a... might be the case. All right. <laughs> we all have computers. I'm going to find out what AM would devolve into. <laughs> so here's the, the next big thing in this episode, which is the code blue, uh, blue alert and code blue. I wonder if it's a gel filter, if they have actual blue-colored lights. Uh, it's got to be a filter. I mean... Yeah, like, I suppose it would be cost-prohibitive to have both blue and red lights. Yeah. But it's a... But in the future... <laughs> it, well, sure. No, I'm sure on the real Voyager, they have blue lights. I'm just talking about the, the facsimile of the real Voyager that we're watching right now. We're doing what? <laughs> Okay, we, I was reading a lot of the Memory Alpha page about the effect and all of that and how they achieved all the stuff. And I, I got to say, I really liked it. it. Part of their, I mean, one, it's just, it's a nifty effect. Um, it's one of those effects like the saucer separation where you film it once and you're going to have, you know, this in the hopper for ages. So it's, you know, worth the investment. And it, it, it sets the ship apart. Um, from, from Well, yeah, landing. I mean, this is the first landing uh, in the franchise. There have been atmospheric flights, but there haven't been actual landings of starships. It also reinforces the idea that the ship is smaller um, than the Enterprise. The Enterprise yeah, it's is. a different kind of ship. It's like a little bit more aerodynamic. It's a little bit more nimble, I guess. Yeah. Now, this is a CGI effect. And it, it, it's one of those, it is CGI, but I, it, I think it actually looks cool. Like, it, it looks fine, especially, you know, adjusting for inflation in terms of the effects quality i'm trying to remember does a landing strut come out of the saucer at all like once they actually land because so. no. i've always speaking as a man who owns about 19 um models of various federation starships the saucer is top heavy it, you know they always have to like tilt it back on the stand to actually make it stand sit upright otherwise it's just not gonna going to topple so like oh, kevin i think on the real starship the warp <laughs> engines are so heavy that okay. they counterbalance okay that that's your theory that that, that they're that they're <laughs> I, i'm just saying there has to be a lot of weight in the back section of that ship to make it not topple forward unsupported and i'm just curious as to how that would work so, when tom says he's never actually landed a starship has anyone actually landed a starship before yeah. this presumably it's designed I mean, not in canada, someone must have as far as we it. know did they well, they've got landing struts. I mean, someone had to test that. So at least on testing. On the Intrepid, the, the namesake of the, yeah. of the class. Yeah. Uh, it's in beautiful California. California. Yep. <laughs> uh, this is also a real plane. They apparently got, it's not the exact model, but it's the same. I think it is sufficiently similar that it should satisfy even the most ardent historian um, that they could find of Amelia Earhart's plane. 
it's an ancient Earth aircraft. Oh, I hate the use. Of, oh God, I, I I forget where <laughs> I was reading. I was um, it was. Um, it was in our, I was re going over our reviews for Voyager season one, and when they called, when she called it ancient England, that same thing. Unless there's just a radical reclassification of human history, ancient means something specific, and we don't. Ancient isn't a relative term; it's an absolute one. At least, when, certainly when we're talking about Western history, it's not like Renaissance Rome will eventually become ancient Rome again. It's there's ancient Rome and the Renaissance. It just drives me like, it can be old, but it can have a name that's not ancient. Just I don't know why that annoys me so much, but it really does. That's a giant battery. I like how there's these gas cans, which, you know, fits with the basic idea of the Amelia Earhart flight. You know, they'd be having extra fuel on the ship. Mm -hmm. I, I, I gotta say, so far the pacing's good. Um, the, you know, it went from truck to signal to plane to cave, and now we have a, I, I guess, it's Daft like Punk is here. Um, and yeah, real... it does kind of look like the brain. Yeah, right. Real cave. This is a real cave, right? Am I not? No, no I can't decide. Yeah, this is a real cave. Yeah. This has to be in the Vasquez rocks or whatever. Yeah. So all all this is cool. Like for for all the you know piddling nitpicking we're doing, the mystery builds well and it builds enjoyably. It, nothing's a crisis yet, and everyone's kind of and that and that's part of the fun between Paris and the truck and you know Janeway and any kind of science. Everyone seems to be having a little bit of fun, or you know, just enjoying figuring it out. So that's fun. This had to have been a pretty expensive episode to shoot. Yeah, apparently, of the four that were held over from season one, the other three were bottle shows. You know, so this is sort of the. I mean, they thought this was going to be the finale, so they must have saved some production money for it. Now, I've always kind of wondered about this cryostasis thing with wiping the glass. I mean, would there <laughs> really be frost on the outside? Well, you know, the designers wanted to make the reveal as dramatic as possible. <laughs> it's just dust. It looks like frost. I don't know, but again, I'm not, you know, I, I might be nitpicking, but right. it's if not unenjoyable. If there were enjoyable. enough contact between the inside of the tube and the outside to create the frost, you'd think there would be... It, it's probably Too much heat not, transmission, yeah. Right. Well, you can't really have a, system, a thermodynamic system completely isolated from the world, so maybe there'll be frost somewhere. They have chosen the most dramatic spot for the frost to manifest. Why? Well, why would you put glass? You know, in the Alcor uh, cryogenic uh, capsules, there is no glass. You can't look at Ted right. Williams's head or anything. Here's the, you know, she could just read it, you know. Why the heck would Amelia Earhart have been wearing a name tag? What's her wings? Yeah, she wasn't actually in a, she wasn't in the military, right? I mean, I, I honestly no. don't. Not by a long shot. Like, I'm just, she wasn't flying on behalf of some organization. She was just, you know. She wasn't really one of the first female pilots. All right, I love the look of having the blue sky outside yeah, the... That's, yeah, that, that's cool. Well, yeah, it's just, cool. we've watched, you know, 15 episodes already, and we've had probably a dozen scenes in here, and the lighting is so different. Yeah, I think they did a great job with the lighting because it really gives a feel that you're getting natural sunlight. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, maybe they just turn the lights off, you know? 
Um, it's kind of depressing that this might still be a mystery 400 years from now. It's still a mystery now, and it's been, I know, what, but... 80 years? 75 years? Well, I gotta say, I, I like, she she knew, she, she knows what I find to be a credible amount of information. Like, she recognized the name, knew the broad points, and then looked up the finer details on her iPad. And I thought that that was, this was a good example of the knowledge of history um, writing for a character. So this has to be sort of the Brandon Braga influence. Yeah. It's like, let's tell an alien abduction story, you know, but have a little twist. Like, that's that's a very Braga idea. Okay, you know? we don't really get too much, like, we never see the aliens responsible. We don't really get that much in way of ex explanation of why they did this. Like, it... Like, I think they, one of the guys eventually says they were brought as, like, slave labor or something. It, that seems like a lot of effort to go to, to get yeah. people to dig ditches or something. Like, I, just, I mean, it, on the other hand, I'm actually fine with there being no explanation, because that's not really the point of this story. It doesn't actually bother me that much. Them remaining kind of mysterious and unseen probably makes them more interesting than if we had actually met them. Well, so, you know, this conversation they're having... I will say I wish that someone would say, don't we have a duty to revive these people? You know, like they've been abducted and put into cryosleep. They're fellow human beings. You know, the Prime Directive doesn't apply. Right. Yeah, heck, I'm sure that, that the actress who played cast Jennifer Lean was thrilled that she didn't have to have her ears on. Uh, oh, that, that's not what they do. They, I think they just, fiddle, they just give her a different wig. Yeah, they a, just give her an even a, worse wig. Right, there's a reveal in the... Uh, oh, yeah. To prove she's an alien, yeah. It's actually a better wig that they have on her right there. I wonder if any of this stuff is reused from anywhere. I bet you these became Borg alcoves. Probably. Well, I'm You're not thinking right. the, the chambers themselves kind of looks like shower doors or something, but all this stuff in the background. Well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, that could be a part of a cube. And that's a pretty cool effect right no, there. That was quite dramatic. Yeah. Is standing upright really the most efficient way of storing people? Wouldn't they all fall? <laughs> <laughs> and then a side note, this is an interesting role for Sharon Lawrence to have taken. So what was she in? She was in NYPD Blue? Yeah. Apparently um, she had, uh, I think she had said, I was reading the, I think she worked with, uh, Kate Mulgrew once or since or something, but was a fan of her work and was uh, ha was very happy to take the part. Wouldn't want to play Amelia Earhart. Yeah. Well, exactly. I mean, that's an awesome role to take on. Sort of Although, a color, color morphing thing. Yeah. Her hair so kind I, of looks like Kessa's hair. Yeah, I was going to say, I do kind of feel bad for her, you know, concerning the wig. That's not a. I've seen. We've seen worse short haircuts on women in this show. This is. This is not bad. <laughs> it's, it's adequate. I like how Mulgrew is playing this. Um, I really like this choice of, of who to find. Like it. I, I think it's it's like a good balance between finding a recognizable historical figure that would have resonance for Janeway, but it's not heavy-handed. It's not. It's not Joan of Arc, and it's not like I, like they picked. Uh, they, they hit a sweet spot for narratively interesting without being silly. 
Okay, here's here's my question about the Universal Translator that we always have. He's saying, you know, you're speaking Japanese, or I'm, like, no one's saying your mouth is not matching your words. <laughs> and that always bothers me. Like, does the Universal Translator make me think I'm seeing someone speaking English? It, it just, how does it work? <laughs> yeah, I have always wondered that. So, um... This guy playing Fred Noonan also played, uh, you might know him best as Tackleberry from the Police Academy movies, or yeah. at least I do. And I like him in this role. He plays sort of a good... Uh, Drunken hothead? Boorish, you know. <laughs> but still not ridiculous. Yeah, know? no, no, he does, it doesn't, doesn't break anything. So is Kim supposed to be... I mean, I assume based on the name, he's supposed to be Korean. Korean. Yeah. Korean. And yeah. so the Japanese guy should be, you know, like totally racist to him right now. Well, I I think he's still getting over the shock of what the heck is going on, and why am I understanding English, or why is everybody speaking Japanese? I I think Sharon Lawrence does a good job of portray like. I like the again. There was a good balance of, you know, awestruck, but she's not incapable. Like I, I wouldn't have liked it had they just had her freak out. Um, Although I suspect the real Amelia Earhart didn't have this gravitas. Oh yeah. Uh, I mean, okay, now I have to interject here. He's talking about his truck. So are we supposed to believe that the 1936 truck was his? And if he is a black farmer from the south he has a truck that's actually fairly new yeah. I, mean, I, I mean i don't think it's he... that hard to believe yeah i mean it's one of those did did they clarify that it was a 1936 truck or just a truck they said it yes. was a 36 yeah okay yeah, they said that, it was a 36. that always does that, that that's one thing i think a lot of period pieces always get wrong because it's 1952. Everyone's driving a 1952 car and wearing 1952 clothes when really they would all still be driving their 1947 car and wearing their 1940s clothes that still fit. You know, but I'm just saying that, that most farmers, you know, especially from that period, you know, whether white or, or black or, you know, whatever race, they're usually struggling to make ends meet. And I just don't think that they'd own a brand new truck. Well, granted, this is during the Depression. Um, you know, I think there are any number of reasons that he could have a relatively new truck. You know, he could have gotten uh, money from the government. He could have been saving up. He could have not been hard hit by the Depression. Um, presumably, he's not in the Dust Bowl. Yeah. I always wondered, like, they all had phasers. It was like eight phasers to one slightly freaked out dude with a gun. I always wondered why they didn't just, you know, or or why not disarm him when you, I mean, that just seems, you know, like a, like a tactical screw up. Like, they should have checked to be well, like. I think they're humoring him. That, well, I think they also don't want to alarm the rest of the people. You know, yeah. they, they just, you know, take a laser beam and shoot this guy you know, down, then they're going to be like, okay, these people aren't nice. And just freak out more. Well, here's your reveal. Yeah, they should have picked a more alien alien, because, you know, I, you could actually see that as being like the complicated piercing 
uh, like you're just a body mod, right? Yeah. Like they should have gone. I'm trying to think who's more alien on the crew. There's not there's not like a wharf walking around. Well, there's Bolana. That's true. I mean, well, but I and, like him. And there's Bolians. I like her skepticism. You know, she's like I've been all over, and people do weird things to their bodies. You know, that's really sensible. And I, I like that uh, they keep anchoring the scene between the uh, Janeway and Earhart is sort of like they're the mutual leaders of the two groups in the room. And Janeway's clearly trying to appeal to the person she believes Earhart to be to get through the situation, which completely works. So here we get the uh, sort of subplot, which is Fred Noonan's alcoholism slash desire to do it with Amelia Earhart. Now, so the flask, would he, the flask has also been in cryostasis with him. Uh, would the liquor be any good? Yeah, sure. <laughs> well, Even stronger. I, mean, I assume <laughs> alcohol doesn't go bad. It's not wine. I mean, at some point, the wine would turn to vinegar, but, you know. No, presumably, whatever uh, cryomechanism preserves human cells such that they can keep metabolizing 400 years later also is going to, you know, preserve alcohol. I mean... How long can you keep rum in your freezer? Yeah. See, this this part troubles me a little bit because I think that Amelia Earhart is at best complicated as a feminist icon. Yeah. Well, so what what would you prefer? I mean, I I think it's reasonable to think that Janeway didn't know her full history you know, just sort of saw her as the icon. Because people do. I mean, people still do sort of think of her as a feminist icon. As long well, as you don't read too deeply. Well, how how should she react, do you think? So how should Amelia Earhart be reacting? Well, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how she felt about herself. They could have gone for sort of a Zephram Cochran kind of, uh, yeah. you know, Uneasy is the head that wears the crown of, uh, you know, being a hero to generations of women. Well, but I think maybe she wanted to be a hero. Yeah, you got it. I mean, presumably. Well, I mean, she was certainly brash and bold and all of those I things. Mean, and she was a celebrity in her day. It wasn't like history discovered her later. She was popular. Yeah, well, she had a very rich and powerful husband, so that helped. Well, it was an interesting time, you know aviation in the early 20th century you know there were people from all different countries sort of jockeying to be the first of this or the first of that um you know it in some ways Janeway I I would think would not really respond to that at all because she lives in such a completely different world in time we think of her as the first female starfleet captain but of course in universe she is not by yeah. any stretch of the imagination oh, rachel garrett there's uh geordie's mom on the saratoga and Star yeah. Trek four though not there's... actually geordie's mom but you know what i mean well yeah whoever it is in star trek four um And so I guess Amelia Earhart has been sort of mollified. And I mean, I like the way we're, they're developing the story between the two of them. Um, part of, and obviously, I believe this is Jerry Taylor's hand as opposed to Brennan Braga. Um, 
this is a way for the show to engage the real world fact of this is the first Star Trek show anchored by a woman and kind and explore that, but not in a and and I'll and I'll say not in a ham fisted way. Yeah, they're so. not beating us over the head with the the feminism here. It's it's pretty low key. So it's not the greatest effect, but it's certainly not bad. No, I think uh, they they were pissed. Uh, reading the memory alpha page, they were mad that the way they end up setting it up, that Voyager looks the wrong size. They thought uh, that it looks too small, um, and they kind of had to jigger the rocks yeah. and the matte paintings to kind of compensate for that. And whatever they did, it seems to work for me. Yeah, it looks yeah, it looks fine. I th- and and it's a cool idea. It's just, it's a, just, a, it's a, like the saucer separating in Encounter Farpoint, it's just cool. Uh, everyone in the universe is terrible shots. Everyone. <laughs> I like that when they were walking, we actually saw like a butterfly or something fly by. Something that sort of tells you they're in a real place. Right. You know, I really wish Starfleet pants had pockets or they just carried like a, like a attache case because... You know, everyone on the show is in shape because they're all, you know, actors and Starfleet officers. The little, like, Velcroed doodads for the tricorder. It definitely phaser. ruins the line of the, the look. You know, Enterprise, yeah. for whatever its faults are, it definitely had the most practical uniforms. Right, zippers and pockets, yeah. Um, you know, I do have to agree on that whole thing because, like, you know, even for having a Halloween costume that was a Starfleet uniform, you know, of course, I'm a nerd, duh. Yeah. So I also had, you know, a tricorder and a phaser, but the uniforms don't come with the little, you know, a, you know, attachment things, but there's yeah. no pockets. So where do you put them? I mean, it's it does seem weird that they would have, have uniforms with no pockets. Well, it, it was sort of a... It was a thing. It was a Roddenberry thing from TOS, I believe. Yeah, no zippers, no pockets, right? Yeah, he wanted things to be futuristic. There's some serious styrofoam rocks going on here. Yeah, and I don't get what the like these helmets make no sense for the humans yeah, to wear. They really restrict your vision. Yeah, I would think they wouldn't be able to see their peripheral at all. I don't think they could see in front of them. <laughs> Like all it was, all this did was give us the artificial moment of revealing Reveal. that they are apparently also human. And there was a better way to do that. They could have been wearing. They could have been wearing scarves, like in Star Trek Two. Right. Fremen like still you. suits from Dune. Anything. I never forget a face. I like this guy who plays Evansville. He 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 brought credibility to the role. Like he really. Like I really, I really thought he sold his position. <laughs> I like the the phaser effect. That looks that that's well done. So we're gonna make a. Uh, this is a very neutral zone moment. Yeah. The alcohol level in his blood is so high; it's inhibiting repair. Well, so Kelly, you know, knowing what you know about Amelia Earhart, does the Fred Noonan romantic angle bug you? Well, I mean, I don't think she or her husband had, like, spotless romantic records, but 
don't think there's I seem to recall reading some letters she wrote to her husband basically saying it's archaic and silly to expect monogamy from each other and I certainly don't expect it from you like something like really like almost shocking for its time well I think he had an affair with Amelia oh from his uh, previous relationship I, I, on one, on the one hand, that would have made this character more complex had they done like the Zephram Cochran engaging the, you know, the the myth and the real person. On the other hand, there's enough going on in this episode that I think if we had to like also deal with that, that that might have just been too much for this story. He couldn't cure the hangover, too. <laughs> I think he's just being a jerk. Um, <laughs> I like the actor. You know, he he's definitely showing some range beyond Tackleberry. <laughs> yeah. Has he been in something else? His voice just like his presence sounds familiar. I'm just I can't decide if it's because he sounds and looks like another Star Trek actor or he's actually With John been... Evansville. Yeah. Uh, well, let's take a look. Actor's name is John Rubenstein, and he has made several appearances. Uh, the other two were in Enterprise. He was in season four as a Vulcan and a Masorite captain in the episode Fallen Hero. Yeah, so you're right, Kevin. You know, alien abduction to turn people into slaves. It's kind of questionable from a, you know, practicality standpoint. Wait, yeah. how do people in stasis have descendants? Did, well, did they clarify so, that the like they use genetic material to breed uh, humans. The remaining thirty-sevens. Yeah. So it's interesting. I mean, there's a lot going on here, this sort of sci-fi idea that these people have built this civilization and they revere the 37s as ancestral god figures or monuments. I would say monuments. Like, I don't think they thought they were gods. I think they thought that it was more just like the... Well, I mean, in, in, the, in the sense of ancestor worship, though, yeah. you know, like, uh, they are sacred in that they represent a, a halcyon age, a, a prior golden age. So here at minute 33, uh, we're, we're informed that the technology that got them here is gone. But then here's here's the you know the hook, which is you should know that life on this planet is good. They have three beautiful cities. Apparently there was some uh, dissension in the ranks between Taylor and Braga about introducing the idea of these cities and then not showing them. Yeah, oh my god, I want to see these cities. Like, I think it would be, like, the art department could really have a field day. Like, starting with 20th century knowledge and design, go nuts. Like, you know, pick, like... <laughs> oh, it's like steampunk or something. Yeah, it's like, basically, you get to redo Star Trek with a different group of people. Like, but that would be really cool. Like, did they all go art deco crazy oh does it look like bioshock because oh then i would have stayed um yeah that would have been really fun um it just it especially because they actually go to the cities Janeway mentions going and that they're awesome and i'm like i want to see the awesome city um yeah that that annoys me 
I just want to point out that Tom apparently was able to uh, convert things into miles per second off the top of his head. Yeah. Well, they're supposed to be brilliant in the future, right? But Miles? Why does he even know what Miles are? Well, he knows that she <laughs> used Miles, yeah. I often ask someone to, uh, to, to, you know, to, to bring me two flat, uh, you know, two barrels or like so i try to come up with all the arcane measurements i can like a a rod or a um furlong so to... they talked about the cities in the captain's log basically yeah was an amazing like... experience in the end <laughs> yeah <laughs> damn it i, I mean they could have at least done native. you know they could have at least done like matte paintings or something of these cities right like in a background thing them. yeah that was a really expensive episode already yeah. True. They but... could have just reused the Angel One mat. Yeah. For the five hundredth time. In some ways, walking around those cities, it was like being back on Earth. And too bad you'll never see it, the viewer. <laughs> it was a little eerie. So yeah, I mean it's I like what they're doing as far as the emotional story. Yeah. But it feels cheap from a you know fan viewer perspective. Right, and I, I gotta say, what I like about this episode is the is the place they took um, the con. The, like, there's a there's several places finding these people could have gone in terms of the narrative. You know, the dramatic problem, like returning them to the past, or you know, like finding a way to get them home but not themselves. Like, they're you know. They're, I, this is a fun one because it presents. Well, it's not a Gilligan's Island sort of thing, right? You know, it's not a. Oh, is the machine going to get us there? Oh, sorry, it didn't. It's like that's off the table. Yeah, we dispense with that is, pretty quickly, actually. Yeah, it's a character question. I do question whether everyone unanimously would decide not to stay, and whether people on here would decide not to join up well i think it's a different episode if you have it seven seasons in like dude we're never getting home yeah well but don't they know that it's only gonna last seven seasons uh, well, that was maybe. Their contract. um oh was it he's talking about swimming in the gulf of mexico yeah i thought he grew up on, on one, of, one these... of the colony worlds yeah yeah I thought he did too, but maybe he, I mean, he at least went to Earth. He went to Starfleet, yeah. Well, he went to Starfleet. Yeah, exactly. So he was at least on Earth for the Academy. I would think the lure of seeing your family and friends again would be stronger than swimming in the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah, and that being said, um, like, they're still, you know, especially when they originally wrote it, barely a year in, like, the, the... like you said, if this took place in season seven, I could see more crew deciding, well, we gave it a try. We actually managed to get jump, jump like 10,000 light years, like 15 times. And we're still not home. It's probably time to pack it in. <laughs> you would think they'd be like, well, heck, you know, we've covered more than a third of the distance in only seven years. So <laughs> at this rate, we should be home relatively soon. You know, actually, if this you're reading the... the uh... Sorry, True. Elizabeth, go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say that that if you had read any of the recent, you know, reboot books in the Voyager universe, yeah, that they actually talk about how 
I don't know. It's really complicated and it's probably not, you know, super pertinent, but they actually say that the trip should have taken 21 years. So I do find it interesting, like the way your math works of, well, you know, they traveled, you know, so far, you know, a third of the way in seven years. You know, they say that in the original timeline, if Admiral Janeway had not, you know, like violated the, you know, the temporal timeline stuff, that it, that it would have taken them 21 years um, instead of seven in the books. Anyway, so. well, no, because it's seven. That's what that's the episode. Yeah, cause she says you'll get it'll be twenty, like a twenty-three year trip. Yeah. Oh, they actually said that. See, I in, in Endgame, yeah. Alien so long. Yeah. Well, now Sorry. these people are thinking about staying, and he says there are many Japanese here, but what, do they speak Japanese? Because once they're off the ship here, don't they have to learn whatever language these people has are resulted? Speaking? Yeah. Unless they still have technology that the Briori left behind that does the translation because otherwise how do the Briori communicate with their slaves I think if he's immersed in it he could learn English <laughs> that's what everyone else whatever language they're all speaking yeah Carrie Kim of all people would not stay on the planet yeah his yeah, ties to home are far too strong yeah he yeah. definitely wants to see mommy and daddy again well, so. not to mention Libby, who we're going to meet just in a couple episodes. True. Um, but even beyond that, you know, if he sticks around, he's in line for a bunch of promotions. Unfortunately it for Harry, no gets. one leaves. <laughs> <laughs> That's Harry's life. You know, this is off topic, but when they demoted Paris, they really should have promoted Harry and had Harry be Tom's superior officer. <laughs> you know, I think you're right. I think that would I think that is a miss um, a missed opportunity. Those thirties pants are not flattering. <laughs> it's like mom jeans, basically. You know, she tried to be a fashion designer. She failed at it. Amelia Earhart. Yep. Really? I didn't know well, that. I know. I don't know how hard she tried. I just it was in some of the in the same way that like Kim Kardashian is is a fashion designer and that she's le allowed the lawful use of her name on the product someone else designed. Well, I don't think it was quite like that, but I I do think it was the kind of thing that you only get a chance at because you're rich. Right. So I suspect we have a lot in common. I mean, it's it's clear the writers think there's something here, you know, that there, there's some comparison to be made that. You know, Janeway, although in-universe is not a pioneer, she is a pioneer for the viewers. Yeah. I mean, yeah, for, for, for the Amelia Earhart, you know, for the, mytho, for the mytho historical figure of Amelia Earhart, the writing for and the acting by Sharon Lawrence is very good. And it, it, like, I may understand intellectually that they're glossing over parts of her, you know, real life that you know, Janeway might not have admired or what role she would have well, actually played. Probably but... Janeway didn't know those things. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I buy this whole scene. Like, and and I, this is a more, you're right, this is a more fun question than will they get home? The question is, will they keep going? And that's narratively more fun. I mean, obviously I understand the show will go on and the ship will, but you can have some fun with, you know, who might be staying, who might be going. I do wonder if someone wanted to stay but would have been badgered into uh, not staying because of the impact of the ship. Because they said, you know, if enough people, if a minority of the ship wants to stay, that might be enough um, 
to make everyone have to stay because there simply wouldn't be enough people left to run the ship. There's a lot of game theory going on here. It's a very peer pressure-y sort of question. Right. I do think this as an episode, though, has far more impact at the end of a season. Because you might believe that someone would really leave. Right, because it's... The first episode of a season, it's like, nah, they're all going to stay. Yeah. Well, yeah, how many actors leave at the beginning of a new season? Just from a viewer perspective. Was Kess in the very beginning of season four? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, she did did do one or two episodes. That was like the trade-off. Yeah, she did, I think, like three, four episodes, maybe tops. I think three episodes. I think one. So, yeah, psychologically, I wonder about, like, making people meet in a cargo bay, you know, to leave. Number one, what if they just got the wrong cargo bay? But number two, <laughs> it's – you just have to think that there would be a lot of social pressure. Right, it's like you have to, you just have to cross this line in front of everyone. Yeah, like uh, – yeah, I could like, see that. where are you walking down the hallway to? Yeah. Really? No, nowhere, nowhere. Um, I did like – you know. Mulgrew did a great job with the scene, and I think Beltran did a good job as well. Like it was a nice moment for them. Oh yeah, she's she's always done a great job with emoting, but not overdoing it. Well, I actually really liked when she walked on the bridge and Tuvok announced uh, Captain on the bridge, and the look she gave him, like that's unusual. You know, because they don't that's usually like, fall back some on that awareness from Tuvok, I guess. You know. Yeah. Like, he knows that there's resonance in this moment, and, you know... They've been friends for a long time. Yeah. He can read her. Yeah, so it's a neat shot ending. I like the sort of heat rippling under the ship. Yeah, yeah. But it's it's a nice image to end a season on. Yeah, it's beautiful, isn't it? It's actually a really nice shot. Um, Yeah, I'm going to say I disagree with the decision to uh, make this the season premiere. It's a it's a very good episode. I just Well, wish... I think it's okay as a season premiere in that it's it feels like there's a lot of cool stuff in it, so it like it feels big enough or something. Yeah. But yeah, I mean I th- I think it's better as a season finale if you're not going to have a cliffhanger. Yeah. They could have made it a cliffhanger. Well, apparently, she walks into the the cargo bay and well, they... apparently Braga was lobbying for it to be a two parter. Um, I don't know if he was lobbying when he thought it was a season finale or if he was lobbying for it after that. But, um, I mean, how would you make it a two parter? Would you make the dramatic question of people leaving the cliffhanger? Uh, would you ha- have to have a villain? Um, have to go see the cities, probably. You might have to go see the cities. That's true. <laughs> Well, that would be a great two-parter if you had people actually staying for a month, you know, forming relationships. Maybe you could have one romantic entanglement. Maybe it would be Harry. Maybe it would be Tom. You know, <laughs> Maybe who, it would be Harry. Of course it would be Harry. <laughs> who, who knows? Um, you know, yeah, so if you see the cities and you see the life and you see people feeling drawn to it, you know, uh, that, that could really work. And, like, maybe the – the colonists need equipment from Voyager or something, you know, so they would have to dismantle the ship or something. Or um, the colonists, there's like, a lot of... like if Voyager stayed, um, they would still have a warp capable vessel capable of interacting with the, you know, surrounding area. Like that'd be a boon, right? Warp capable yeah. starship, well-trained crew. I'm sure this would fit well. Um, I feel like they duffed on the question of any of these hundred thousand people 
you know, choosing not to, you know, go on the f super fantastic ship from the future with, you know, the best technology ever. It's like there have to be some people who are disaffected with these right. three cities who would be like, yeah, screw this. I'm getting on the spaceship, you know. Or would at least think about it. Yeah. Uh, anyway, as far as writing goes, I think it's an, a nifty hook. Like I imagine. Next, let's look at this here. Let's see if there's a story credit. No, it was written by Taylor and Braga with no story credit for anyone else. This is one of those things where I imagine a pitch meeting where someone's like. There's a pickup truck floating in space, you know, and Michael Pillar's like, okay, stop right there. We're buying it, you know, um, and maybe that did happen, but it was uh, Braga and Taylor. So I think it's it's a nifty hook. Kevin, you were saying a couple days ago that this is very TOS in a way. Do you want to elaborate on that? Um, I think uh... – the kind of hero worship moment, uh, you know, it, the the Zephram Cochran episode of TOS comes to mind. Well, um, or the Space Lincoln episode. Yeah, and the oh god, even yeah, that's even more on point. Um, and then the idea of the you know aliens who came to Earth and did things but are gone now and have left an Earth-like Earth away from Earth for us to wander around. That's a that's happened like eight times in TOS, and, and just the story feel like for for reasons that i made sense in story and were dramatically satisfying as a viewer tng and deep space nine were not as big into raw exploration as as voyager kind of has to be and tos was so there's something about like you i think you can picture captain kirk beaming down to a world finding humans there for no reason and then having this story play out like there's there's just the 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 top. Try to do it with Amelia Earhart though. Oh, he would have done it with Amelia Earhart. Let's <laughs> uh, let's give credit where it's due. I think they both would have been gagging for it pretty immediately. Like like it would have been um you know like Marlena or um well who's the other like just just like clearly look on your face would yeah that would have happened. Um, Apparently there was some talk that uh, George Takei was going to be the the Japanese soldier. It was a rumor really? before the beginning of season two that George Takei would be, get, you know, they they probably picked up on the fact that he was in talks to appear later. When was his episode? Was that season two or season three? Uh, flashback. I want to say it's early season three. Yeah, I think it's season three. Because the episode in DS9 was season five, and weren't they two seasons apart for the Star Trek anniversary? Like, you know, because they, cause they, both Voyager and DS9 had those kind of flashback episodes at about the same time to coincide with some Star Trek anniversary. Episode okay. three, season two. Yeah. Episode two, season three. That's it. There we go. Another Brandon Braga episode. Um, anyhow, that's beside the point. Uh, how do you feel about writing, everybody? Um... I like what they did. I think uh, maybe I think this could have actually been um, really fleshed out with a two-parter. You could have had a more actiony conflict plot in the on the, on the world, and then spend more time developing the decision to stay or not. Like if there were some crisis that they helped solve over several days or weeks 
on the world in these three cities that we would then get to see that would make a more credible case for you know why people might really want to choose to stay and whether or not they do so i think both stories could have just gotten more time i don't think they're either as underdeveloped per se i just think it would have been more interesting to have more of them anyone else um well i i have to agree with you i think that for being a 43 minute episode that it was very well written and i thought that the character of um amelia Earhart was pretty uh well done considering you know the setup of the story i think that if it had been expanded to a two episode arc that it could have been a lot more interesting because there could have been some you know like you said some big problem that needed to be solved you know, or just something to where we could see the city, see more of the people, and then even see why all 100,000 of these people would want to stay. Um, but for what it was, I think it was very well written. Yeah, I, I think the writing's good. And I, I think, you know, Kevin, at one point you said the pacing was good. And I think it's good in the sense that it, it keeps you engaged and it's good in all of those ways. And, you know, the emotional impact of the story is definitely there. But there are some weird kind of pacing decisions about, like, how long we're going to spend looking at a truck at the beginning, how long we're going to spend, you know, in the conference room, whatever it's called, on Voyager talking about things. You know, when there are things, I think it's just that there's so many, like, tantalizing little things that they could have developed. Yeah, yeah, I get that. You know, only seeing, like, three of the hundred thousand is a kind of bizarre choice. So, you know, I, I don't think any of those things takes away from the story necessarily. It just sort of leaves you wanting more. Like, I would have even liked more interaction with the rest of the 37s. There's like an Indian woman and a, yeah. I think a Viking. I couldn't tell. Like, he just looked, he was just bearded. Um, so, yeah, that, that... Or if they'd started fighting with each other or something. Because yeah. Yeah. Japan was aggressively militaristic at this point. And, you know, or if they had mentioned the Depression at all. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Um so yeah, uh, so I know it sucks. You miss your families, but he, you have gotten out of the depression in the cleanest way possible. I mean, really. Um, yeah, like I, I like the acting and I like the character work in itself, but maybe the stuff with Fred Noonan, it didn't add. I don't know. It didn't progress the episode. If you know, if you know what I mean, where it's like it was, it wasn't bad and it wasn't. It didn't detract from the episode, but it didn't really progress anything to the event in the eventual actual narrative conflict. Well. I imagine that Taylor and Braga both thought about, you know, should we do fish out of water, past person in future context stuff? And they really didn't, you know, it's like they only did it for like 20 seconds of dialogue between characters, as opposed to going back to that. Well, that has been gone to many times. Uh, like the neutral zone springs to mind, you know, in the neutral zone, there's just loads of like, you know, we got to get us some low mileage pit woofies and make ourselves a memory. And, you know, it's like, you mean you replicated this? You, you, the wall gave you this guitar? And, you know, like, would that have been worthwhile? Is that a worthwhile thing to do, Have it having been done? I mean, it's fun. It's fun each time they do well, it. They right? would have to find it. I think I believe they are both sufficiently talented writers that alone or in concert, they could have found a spin or an avenue they hadn't explored before. So it wasn't just a parroting of the neutral zone stuff. There's, there's a way to do fish out of water things. Um, you know, I, I don't think the neutral zone exhausted all of the avenues to show how someone 
might not, you know, fit in right away in this new world. Um, I want to know why Ralph Offenhaus didn't just like start replicating gold. <laughs> Any okay, so well, he anyway, would, he more than anyone would understand doing that would make the gold worthless. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I kind of wonder if I would have liked this episode better if it had been written by just one of them. It does. It, I will say, uh, having not just watched the shows a lot, but watched them sort of, you know, more intentionally, critically, it is now much easier for me to identify, you know, a Braga script or a Ron Moore script or a Jerry Taylor script. So the seams of their union, it shows in a way that, you know, like the best collaborations of Ron Moore and Brandon Braga don't actually, you, you, like, as dedicated viewers and pedantic farts, we know who wrote what line if we really thought about it, but the episode as a narrative piece doesn't really, it's not like I'm like, oh, well, Braga wrote this scene and Ron Moore wrote this scene and you can tell because everything is different. Here, it's not that bad, but it's closer. You can tell, like, here's the elements that this writer cared about and fought for, and here's the elements that the other writer cared about and fought for, but they don't synthesize in the way that um, Braga could with, with more. I mean, I think it's a good synthesis. It's just maybe not quite as gelled as it could be. Yeah. Well, so yeah. Had, it, had it been more Taylor, it might've been heavier on the character elements. Yeah. If it had been more Braga, it would have been heavier on the alien abduction. Right. You know, people being creeped out and freaking out sort of elements. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, you know, I think they've, just should not have introduced the three extra cities if they weren't going to go there. You know, yeah. I think I think that was a bit lazy. Uh, okay, anyhow, acting wise, um, Sharon Lawrence. Oh, she was phenomenal. Yeah, she she brought the gravity to the part that the ver- if nothing else, the version the writers and Captain Janeway had in their head was supposed to have. Like, yeah. they wrote that character and she nailed it. Um. David Graff is Fred Noonan. Good, like he was, he was a believable, not obnoxious hothead. Like I, I, there's a delicate line when you're supposed to be the slightly unlikable or slightly obnoxious character, where you, you do it so well or so intensely that I actually just don't want to watch you anymore. Yeah, and, I thought he had enough charm to make it believable that she would hang around with. This right, guy. like, like you have to spend days at a time in a small tin room with this dude. He has to at least be funny. I mean, so yeah, that I bought that. So as far as the other 37s with speaking roles, we had Mel Winkler, who plays the Black Farmer. Um, I thought he was fine. I mean, it, yeah. it wasn't Shakespeare or anything. You know, the same goes for James Saito as Nogami. Uh, I thought, you know, I thought everyone was fine. And, and I liked Evansville. I thought he, I believed his character like even if i didn't get to see the cities i believe they exist um because of the way he sold it so good for him so about it you know with the main cast this seems like it's a janeway episode yeah that's fair to say and it's a good janeway episode i think we sort of learn a lot about her and who she is and really feel for her and she does emotion great as always well, the fact that they went for the the story question that they did, I, I'm glad they went there as opposed to just her having hero worship because that's not terribly interesting. And, you know, yeah. it, it wouldn't be enough for her, I don't think. It's like after one scene of her being awestruck, that's 
enough. Um, the other person I would say who stuck out was uh, Robert Duncan McNeil as Tom Paris. Uh, you know, his sort of, I don't know, geeking out over automobiles really kind of carried the first third of the episode. Like, he was into it, you know, and he sort of propelled the plot in terms of figuring out the radio and, you know, turning on the car. If he hadn't started the car, the radio wouldn't have worked, you know? That's true. I kind of wonder whether the sensors would just pick up this, you know, AM signal. Like I'm saying, if they can pick up rust, they can pick up AM, especially like a modulated, well, a repeating like, signal, intentional, yeah. like yeah, like a sign of intelligence AM radio signal. Like, come on, like. Well, yeah. they then they did that in uh, Up the Long Ladder, for instance. Right. You know, it's like that's what set that plot, such as it was in motion. <laughs> we use uh, the word plot generously in that case. Oh, <laughs> it's a plot. <laughs> There are things that happen in that episode. <laughs> each and each more horrifying than the last. Um, our production What's value. What's the matter, William? Don't you like girls? Oh, God. <laughs> oh. The production values of this episode were great. Um, the landing scenes, I, I think, you know, 10, 15, what are we now? 15, 20 years down the line from this episode. Oh, gosh, yeah, 15. almost 20. Yeah. yeah, they show their age. You look at that and you go, that is 90 CGI, but not in, a, not in like a bad way. It's not like I'm like, oh, God, this is awful. I can't believe people used to look at this. Did they carve it with, into stone tablets? I'm like, no, it, it's 90 CGI. It was a good use of the technology they had available. And this is what I always like about good CGIs. They used it to do something they could not do optically on their budget that was narratively interesting. Voyager as a ship can land, and that is cool. It's good to know. We will do it again. So I like it. You know, it's like you you use the CGI to serve your story, and you did things with it that would have been impracticable at the time to do physically. Good, thoughtful use of CGI, and no lens flare. We thought, just just so you know, we can't actually let a podcast go by without bashing um, the new stuff. It's in our contracts. Well, I think uh, the truck was cool. You know, I think it was a neat thing to have on set. There's some good location work. Uh, Production-wise, I agree with my sister. You know, they could have thrown a matte painting in there yeah. just for a city, even if they weren't going to visit. You know, they could have had a city in the distance, for crying out loud. Did they right. have to make it 50 miles away? Couldn't have been, like, five miles away? Um, you know, it, so it wasn't perfect production-wise, but it wasn't terrible. Um, and there was cool stuff and I liked the code blue sort of lighting yeah. and you know, the, the conference room was cool. So, you know, all in all good stuff. Um, uh, all right. Well, what do our guest podcasters think on a scale of five with three being average? Can't I give like a four and a half? Do you really not allow that? <laughs> we don't allow any. Well, you can fractional... actually give it any score you want because we're not actually writing it down. I mean, if you want to give it a four and a half, we can't actually stop you. It's, uh... that's, that's true. I mean, it would probably be a four and a half ish for me. I mean, I guess if I had to come down one or the other, it's probably a four. It's not. It's a. It's an episode that if I sort of think through episodes, I go, yeah, that's a cool episode. I like that one, but it's probably not one that I'm going to say is one of the best in the series. 
So I, I think I go with a four. Yeah, you, you took my review right out of my mouth. Um, <laughs> Sorry. No, it's okay. Well, that People agreeing with me is, is more fun than getting to say that. <laughs> well, and I have to agree with Callie and by extension with Kevin that I, that I would say four um, because, you know, I look back on it. I say that it's a thoroughly enjoyable episode. It certainly does have a sci-fi element that is strong with, you know, alien abduction and, you know, you know, the technology used to, you know, kidnap people from Earth and take them to the Delta Quadrant, you know. So there is science fiction involved in there, of course. But it's also, I think, a good character piece for Janeway. And I think that the character of, you know, Earhart was done quite well. And it was, you know, suspenseful. You know, there was, I, I thought the pacing was good. So I would say that it's above average, but certainly not in my top 10 Voyager episodes, but perhaps within my top 25. So I would give it a four. Yeah. Uh, Kevin? Yeah, I agree with the four. Um, yeah, this is the, the, the setup is very fun and interesting and very Braga. The emotional moments of will the crew stay or not, and the, the, the scene in the shuttle bay absent are, you know, overanalyzing any questions about game theory and social interactions is very good. Like I, I bought Janeway's tension and release in that scene. So well done. Um, I liked the, her coming on the bridge and everyone looking at her. That was, you know, very subtle and well-played. So yeah, the, the lack, we're really mad about these three cities. I mean, they could all be, they could be like Paris, London and Venice. And I don't, I, we wouldn't have been satisfied really. It just, um, aside from like the, this probably could have actually been a two-parter just to give all of the neat ideas they prompted space to really expand. That being said, this is an above-average episode, certainly. Um, production values are above average. The acting, both star and guest, is very good. And the writing is certainly interesting. So, yeah, I, I'm going to agree with the four. Well, <laughs> I don't know. I think it's a three. And... A three is not a pejorative, you know, sort of dismissal of an episode. I think it's in the fat part of the bell curve. I think the dangling questions are big enough and the uh, the lack of development of certain things. You know, it's like, for instance, you take the, the question of whether people are going to leave. You know, it's a really interesting emotional question. It only gets like three minutes of development in this episode. There have been other episodes that have, you know, developed that question or similar types of questions over a much greater, like, I feel like maybe they tried to cram a little too much into it. And as such, things were, you know, given a bit of short shrift. It, one side effect of cramming a lot into an episode is it's, you know, never boring. This episode is not boring. This episode is very crisp. It moves along quickly. You know, I love the hook. I think the hook is great, and I think it gets to the planet in an interesting way. Um, I also think the whole thing, it's like, couldn't they have had some other rationale for being pulled onto the planet besides slavery? You know, because that's just really lame. It's just a really lame explanation. And maybe that, maybe that's just their explanation. Maybe that's what they thought it was, and they're wrong. You know, that would be interesting, too. Yeah, that'd be cool. Um, you know, so I... 
knowing what I know about the rest of season two of Voyager, I want to give this a four just to balance that out a little bit, but I'm not going to because I think this is it's a there's su- no Kazon. <laughs> there are there is no Kazon in this episode, and that is definitely in its favor. I'm surprised the Kazon haven't like discovered this planet and <laughs> stolen their gasoline or something. Um, there's water in the radiator. Yeah. Uh, why an interstellar species, you know, is short on water is a good question. Um, I, I just think I think it's stoutly, solidly, resolutely average. You know, there are neat elements, none of which really, you know. Uh, go the extra mile, you know, into into super cool territory. I, I think it just misses a four, I, you know. So it's like a three point seven five. If you if we were to do <laughs> fractional ratings, it would be a high. Occasionally, Kevin and I will say it's a high three, but mathematically, it still works out to be a three. A three is a three is a three. Um, so that, that's where I stand on it. Uh, I like it. I like threes. Threes are good. You know, it's like. If Star Trek were all threes, I'd still like Star Trek. If the new movies were threes, if, hey, them. yeah, I mean, as a three, this is like a. Is this an exponential scale, Kevin? Is this a billion times better <laughs> than Star Trek two thousand nine? It may be. Well, it would still even if it were exponential, wouldn't it, or like if it were like logarithmic, wouldn't it just be like a hundred times better being a two degrees up? But that. Now we're really overanalyzing. It's better. Yeah. It's better than both two, Star Trek 2009 and Into Darkness. That is axiom. I I accept that as axiom. <laughs> yes. But yeah, nothing I, worse it, than those exists. Yeah, um, I I uh, I was just pulling up our old, uh, you know, off the cuff review, and we both gave this a three then. So uh, analysis made me like this more. Um, yeah, you know, I actually think. I would even it would still be a four, but I think it would be an even higher four had they kept it as the season finale because I think it would have felt like oh they they're thinking about the season as a whole and the show and where the like, the development of the crew as a crew and that's an appropriate thing to do with your season finale as a season opener that moment that moment would have had even more resonance if it happened at the end of a season rather than the start for well the, here's my point though look what they did in the episode they had. Harry Kim and Balana talk about it for like a 30 second scene. Yeah. And then they had Janeway and Chakotay talk about people we've never heard of yeah. right. and whether they would stay or not. It's just less interesting than actually giving us real meaty scenes where at least one character we know and love is seriously thinking about it, you know? And so that's what I mentioned about the two parter would have made that a lot more resonant. You know, it's like, Harry actually gets laid, you know, or, yeah. you know, Tom Paris helps someone, you know, build a dozen new Ford trucks, you know, like whatever to actually tie them to the place, you know, yeah. it, the, the tie to the place never felt real because we never saw the cities and we never saw the characters interact in such a way that we worried whether they would stay, you know, they, they were never really given a reason outside of dialogue, you know. It's like Janeway is giving a captain's log where she says, you know, oh, yeah, you know, it was really amazing. Well, gee, thanks for telling us, but that doesn't really make it feel as a viewer like it, like it's a serious concern, you know. So th- that's really where I feel the episode fell flat a little bit. Um, but it's still entertaining, quite entertaining, in fact. Uh, it's, it's a solidly average show, in my opinion. Um, any further words from the peanut gallery? 
Elizabeth? I would say nothing constructive aside from, you're wrong, Matthew, neener, neener, but whatever. Okay, well, no, <laughs> I think there's a solid argument to be made for a four. I think, um, I mean, I think it's interesting to have uh, two women in on the podcast with us because, of course, Kevin and I can try to imagine what it's like to, you know, watch TV as a woman and like the fact that there are female characters and stuff. But, you know, it's like maybe this means more to you, right? I don't know. Does it? It means meant more to me before I read up more on Amelia Earhart. <laughs> <laughs> because I sh- absolutely grew up with her as sort of a hero and it didn't make me want to become a pilot or anything, but you know, I thought she was really cool and was one of my sort of role models. And I'm sure had I watched Voyager when it was on, Janeway also would have been sort of a, you know, fictional hero. Well, I, I've always felt that Janeway is a, female role model par excellence if you ask me i mean she's she's not some sort of you know feminazi 80s feminist you know like second wave uh you know nasty person she's i mean she's to me a great feminist icon a post yeah no post she's, second wave feminist she's icon. emotional she's feminine but she's still strong and yeah, she's still but she's strong and competent very, well, she's very and very intelligent. I mean, she was a scientist before she was a captain, and it always shows in in much of the show that she's not only capable and compassionate, but she's intelligent. She's often yeah. the smartest person in the room. You know? Right, exactly. But one thing I've always liked about her is that she doesn't... She's not played by Kate Mulgrew, nor is she written as someone who has something to prove, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. Well, and so that's what's refreshing about it is that, you know, she's in a future where women don't have to prove anything. They yeah, can, they, they accept her as the authority figure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, so I could see this as an interesting thing, having Amelia Earhart, you know, two aviation pioneers or whatever. Uh, it doesn't really do that for me, though, personally. Like, I view it as a sci-fi story, and to me there are sci-fi questions that go unanswered and character questions that aren't developed. So um, that's just me. All right, well, that's a seven. I think that's, yeah, that's, a, a, that's a good rating. rating. Nothing to be ashamed of. Um, you know, we'll see how the rest of the season goes. Uh, you know, it's... Um, there are going to be a lot of Kazan episodes coming up, people. Yeah, there's one coming and... up, and I tried. I actually tried to rewatch it in advance of us starting the season, so I'd have it done. And I, 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 I was so bored. Oh my god! Threshold well, and the thaw yeah, are in this th- season. Threshold and the thaw. It's um, Ugh. it's like two move along homes in one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Well, Threshold is half of a great episode. Sure. Yeah. All they had to do was understand how evolution works, and. I can't believe I have to say this, not have the captain have lizard sex with the pilot. I mean, had they yeah. followed those two simple rules of, of television writing, they would have been fine. Um, not have lizard sex with the pilot. I have to remember that line. At That's some a point. rule of writing there. Yeah, it's, 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 it's right up the, yeah, I, I just. Rule. Show, don't tell, don't have lizard sex with the pilot. <laughs> uh, and I mean, I, w- I would even be willing to have let go of the warp 10 
mean that warp 10 on the scale means infinite velocity and therefore you simultaneously occupy every space in the universe at once and you basically just choose to stop doing that in a different place that's actually a neat idea that there's a cool quantum philosophical question in there and it would literally be a universe shattering thing and that'd be fun to contemplate like if voyager shows up hey we figured out how to be literally every like you can never use that excuse at work i can't be in two places at once ah but now you can like that would have been fun i think this is a future podcast kevin yeah oh sorry i just every time i think <laughs> about that episode there is non sequitur in this season which i love so it's not all bad no it, it's an uneven season it's not all bad there are there are plenty of good things in it uh tom paris with spaghetti on his uniform for instance um the shrinking doctor uh you know there's yeah yeah. there's good stuff and there's not good death wish is in this season so the really great q episode so there's there's a light toward the middle of the tunnel which which we will get to um i think i think that wraps it up for uh for this uh group podcast of uh of of the 37s uh i hope i hope uh kelly and elizabeth had fun oh yeah all right um, live long and prosper everybody all right have a good night everyone long and prosper peace and long life